everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of the jams tea podcast we spin the jams and spill the tea and each week we come at you with a brand new now episode where we talk about new music and music news and we're here today yes indeed and want to shout out a couple of things that have happened recently on the channel that we're really excited about the first and biggest the first can be huge now listen folks that doesn't no it's not right the first and <laughs> biggest of which is an amazing milestone that we could have never in a million years pictured happening Ten thousand subscribers it's frankly dizzying uh we're filled with disbelief like seeing the numbers tick up throughout the year has been you know it's been terrifying if i'm really honest like it's been you know, we, we've been grinding at this for over three years now. And, and for the vast majority of that, our growth has been like, has been a trickle, you know, it's, it's so much of, of the work that took us the most time and so much of the work that had the most, I think, like fresh faced, innocent passion behind it. It was, was just for itself. I say. And now yeah. that we're here with something like an audience, we're, burdened and cynical so <laughs> no, but like um welcome but yeah now it's like everything we put out it's like there's actually ten thousand people who may or may not get shown this briefly <laughs> yeah for five seconds who may or may not like scroll past this on their timeline it's an incredible honor honestly but no ser- on a serious note like it is it's crazy it's awesome and we're so grateful for every single one of you especially those of you who've stuck around to watch the videos to engage with us to leave comments to leave likes like little things like that obviously all youtube creators say this so we don't you know but it is true it, it means a lot it's not like you know those things we don't do this for growth and i don't think any of us are expecting to kind of really ever make anything like money out of this it's all for passion and for the satisfaction of getting to do this and have conversations about music we 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 do this purely because we have to put it somewhere yeah so the fact that so so when people when anyone interacts with us when anyone kind of leaves a comment or likes the video or does anything like that it that fulfills everything that we basically could have hoped for so yeah and I mean, at time of recording, we're almost at 11k as well. So it's just, it's ridiculous. Um, what can you say? On the note of channel growth, we did our uh, discography breakdown on The World is a Beautiful Place, I'm No Longer Afraid to Die. If you've been listening to us, following us, you know, we are big, 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 big fans and proponents of that band. And getting to break down their discography was a real t- treat for Riley and myself and guest uh, Zach. It turned into something that was really more like a retrospective on mid-2000s and 2010s emo scene revival as a whole. And honestly, it's one of the videos that we have made that I have been the most proud of just because it has a, a really great to quote myself in that video, a really great continuity about it. So thank you yeah. for everybody who watched. Uh, and if you aren't into that band, get into them so you can watch our video on it. Yeah, you're right. It, it became something so much bigger even when we were recording it. Um, and then in the aftermath, when I was trying to put it together 
and make it into what it is now. You know, it's, it's, it is a discography breakdown. It is covering the records of a band, but it is also talking about an entire movement and music. And even more broadly than that, talking about the way that we consume and think about music in the internet age, the importance and the significance of the idea of the collective uh, in art, in this particular part of, of cultural modern history, you know, without being too you know wanky or pretentious about it but that was a big part of it so yeah I, I think that is one of the videos that we've done that i am the most proud of in every respect because it is one of the most absolutely sophisticated and accomplished and uh well realized things that we've created and it goes beyond just the humble modest aim of talking about albums so yeah that's me mm-hmm. being you know that that's my ego stroked and i'll move on so for the rest of this now episode, we're obviously going to talk about music news, and we're also going to talk about a couple of recent records that have come out that we are interested in that we want to talk about. Like last week's now episode, I kind of like the idea of bookending the video with these two records. And so I want to start off by talking about an album from an artist who we've talked about before. In fact, one of the very first artists we ever reviewed on the channel, uh, someone who's very close to our hearts, someone whose ethos and spirit and style and and music in general has been a huge source of inspiration to us and he's been in the news in the music world this week for a couple of different reasons in association with this record as well and that is jeff rosenstock and a huge at this point legend in pop punk and punk music in general in the last 15 20 years from bomb the music industry through into his solo work as well you know from 2015's fantastic we cool through Worry, which was one of the biggest and, and best pop punk records of the 2010s, uh, Post, No Dream, Scar Dream. I mean, we've got to talk about both of those two in some capacity, which is really, really awesome. And now is back with a new album, Hell Mode. It is... We don't want to live inside a hell mode. Thank you. Yeah, that, that has been how I've been thinking of the title this whole week. You know... Yeah, same. <laughs> Incidentally, Jeff just turned 40 as well. It's kind of an interesting detail that I mentioned because there's a thread to this record and there is a kind of contextual background to this record of the aging punk rocker. It's a phase of being a figure in the punk rock scene that, you know, everyone goes through provided you don't have a fiery, tragic, young death. One of the things I've actually always enjoyed about Jeff is that He's spoken about very sort of contemporary and very like young feelings and experiences and sensations, but he's also brought them into the world of adulthood, into the world of kind of more, you know, realistic and mundane things. I think that's something that he's always done with all of his solo career stuff. I mean, right back to We Cool, but even in Worry as well. You know, you don't get many pop punkers who are talking about things like mortgage rates and talking about things like inflation and talking about, you know, various sorts of big political issues and the way that he does while still having this very spirited, like collegey punk rock style that he has. I mean, that's the been the really interesting dynamic and the really interesting aspect to Jeff's personality that's made him stand out, I think, is the way that he has this kind of young spirit and energy and style and the way that he writes and performs music, but that he also, you know, lyrically 
the way he approaches songwriting is from a very sort of like, I'm growing up and life sucks and I have to deal with all of these things. And at the same time, the world around me is turning to shit and becoming overwhelmed by a swirling vortex of hate, basically. And that swirling vortex of hate is something that has been a huge part of the identity of a lot of the albums that he's released in his solo career i mean especially a record like post for instance which was in such a huge part like a, a reaction to the uh early phase of the trump era and you know no dream as well you know confronted the the realities of you know it's interesting like worry and no dream are both records that are that were recorded before the massive swirling terror yeah. that they came out in because worry being like a record that came out in october i think of 2016 and then no dream coming out like right in the early days of the pandemic as well you know these are records that were recorded before these huge crises were visible or were really all that culturally which crisis is next exactly um but then those records have been consumed within those crises and read through that lens as well. And so it leaves Jeff's work in a really interesting position as well, where, you know, the thing that comes after often tends to be the thing that was reckoning with what we were experiencing while we were listening to the last thing. Um, so, yeah. And I would say that as Jeff gets older, now being in his forties as well, the concerns of the world kind of getting away from you and the concerns of things getting scarier and less knowable and more isolating become more acute in his music. And that I think is one of the defining aspects of Hell Mode, this new album from Jeff. I mean, Jake, what are your thoughts on this record? The idea of the aging punk rocker. We kind of talked about that a little bit last week with Spanish love songs. And also that's just sort of, uh, you know, an area of music that I think we gravitate towards with bands like, you know, the Menzingers, for instance, like these are bands that have all taken from the same sort of sonic and genre template and have largely the same kind of spirited concerns. Uh, and it all just manifests in a way that I feel like really speaks to us. And Jeff does really speak to me in a lot of his writing. So I was curious to see where Hell Mode would take that just because I listened to like one of the singles and it was so drastically different from anything Jeff had made up until that point. Like I got a lot of like nineties rock vibes from one of the singles. And I was just like, this sure is interesting. And then I listened to it and I was like, huh, why is this not really doing it for me? And I, I came to a weird conclusion and that it's Jeff is simultaneously really preoccupied with the things that he's always been preoccupied with. And at the same time, he's trying to showcase a bit of personal growth uh, in, you know, the lyricism here. That's what everything here is more or less about, you know, him taking steps, him going to therapy, you know, doing all that stuff, self-improvement. Uh, and still acknowledging the inner darkness of the world around him. And that does manifest on several of the best moments on this record. But there's a lot of stylistic choices that this album makes that just kind of leave me... I'm, I'm just not really sure what I'm meant to do with it. Like, especially on stuff like the first couple of songs on here. Uh, Will You Still You, for instance, is like... There's blast beats in this song. There's like this sparkly, spacey passages like before that. And it's just like, I'm so like, I just have no ground to stand on when it comes to songs like this. And that said, there's plenty of great classic Jeff Rosenstock moments on here. Uh, I really like the song Doubt 
for instance. I think that's one of the moments where all of the album's best aspects, both sonically and lyrically, really come together. And one of the risks that I really think pays off is actually the title track on here, Heal Mode. Um, my favorite song on here by some margin, honestly. It's a really tender ballad that's, you know, Jeff's not like a, you know, a blunt lyricist or anything. Part of his chief appeal is that he's just like a great writer. But on here, he's distinctly a lot more prosaic and the song is moody and contemplative, but it's also just really sweet. And it feels like this is the moment where the ethos of the album bleeds through the strongest and I get on its wavelength the most. But as it stands, for me, this is a bit more of a mixed bag than I would like. Yeah, I had a bit of a weird reaction to this as well initially, where I couldn't quite feel out why I wasn't connecting with it in the way that I'd hoped to, the way that I did with No Dream, for instance. And part of it, I think, is that I'm growing a little bit away from Jeff's particular approach to writing and performing about these topics i'm i just tend to be a little bit more interested with artists that are working in a slightly more esoteric realm or deviating from the template a little bit more dramatically or weirdly than this but that said i want to acknowledge the variation that this record does offer <laughs> you know in some ways it's business as usual for jeff but in other ways there are surprises and there are attempts to branch out his sound a little bit further from the punk template that I think are worthy of acknowledging and are worthy of praise. They just don't tend to land for me. I, I like, I tend to like the heavier moments more on this record because what yeah. I really want the most from Jeff at this particular stage is just to really get my head bashed in. I want stuff that's mm -hmm. as fast and aggressive and loud as possible. So for instance, I actually quite like the first two songs. In fact, I really like the song Head. It just has this real raw aggression to it. And I love that, you know, almost rapping style of like really fast delivery that, that Jeff offers on this track. It's really, really fun. Uh, moments like Liked You Better, and future is dumb and soft living and heal mode i'm less enamored with although they do they do at the same time they do i think showcase the most branching out that that jeff is doing on the record as well so they're worthy of acknowledgement it's just i am maybe connecting with this a little bit less because i'm not really as invested in jeff as i used to be which is which sounds like a really kind of mean thing to say but it's just real and you know, in the moments when Jeff gets really current and, and political and he sort of talks about, you know, the edgy shitlord and stuff on a song like Soft Living, I was like, you know, Jeff is really pointed and he's great at sending these twisted barbs that really resonate with a kind of, with a feeling that we've all had for a number of years. But he does do that again and again and again. And after a while, it begins to feel a little bit fatiguing. It's not even really a Jeff thing. It's kind of just like, I'm at a point now where I don't need as many songs about how annoying right-wing shitlords are as maybe I did five years ago. And also, it doesn't help that Jeff is, with a song like Soft Living, Jeff is approaching this topic in a, in a less aggressive and more sort of singing style, which I don't think complements the material as well as it as well as i'd like anyway 
he's already done it, you know, like on worry and stuff like that. He kind of got to the heart of it without sacrificing the like personal emotionality of it. So when it shows up on here, it just can't help but feel a little bit less substantial. Absolutely. And again, I, I don't like to lean on that as a criticism too much because what that really reflect, reflects is my, you know, mm -hmm. desire for Jeff at this particular time and not, you know, the qualities of what Jeff is doing in and of themselves. Um, you know, there's great tracks on here. I think, I think doubt is great. I think that the closer three summers is excellent. It's a really kind yeah. of sweeping and, and beautifully heavy piece that has a great sort of finale to it with a lot of pomp and, and feeling that I love, but yeah, it is, um, I don't know. I kind of maybe want a hard reset from Jeff. Like Scar Dream was really, really was a it was a kind of fun little fooling around thing, you know. But I, I kind of liked the the idea of it. The idea of mm -hmm. just completely overhauling the aesthetic you've built and just leaning so heavily into a a, a new path, into a new direction. Even though what Scar Dream was was a really just a throwback to bomb the music industry, but it felt so fresh. So yeah, I'm in a weird position where I don't feel like super great about where I'm at with the album, but I do enjoy it. I think it's a good record. I think that if you're really in the paint for Jeff and you've been really kind of hungry for more Jeff, you'll probably get a lot out of this as well. Morgan, is there anything you want to add? Uh, I like Worry a lot. No Dream, I was famously cooler on, even though I think that album is good. And I'm pretty much on the exact same wavelength with this album as I was on that one this is like in comparison to no dream this is like two steps forward and two steps back in every sense this should be a dude that I fuck with really heavily and I just never have and I think part of it is just that he's too modern for lack of a better word like there's nothing about his songwriting at least on the three albums that I've heard that feels timeless to me it all seems entrenched in a particular societal framework and mood and uh, i mean obviously it has value for that and you know the the counterpoint to that argument is regardless of how it's framed a lot of these feelings are pretty universal and constant but there is something about the way he writes that is just a little too I don't know, like I think of it in comparison to someone like the Menzingers or the Wonder Years. And it's like, I mean, part of it is just that he's inescapably online in a way That's that true. I mean, That's true. I don't resonate with and never have with any artist. Like, really, I don't I don't want to listen to a song about how annoying right wing Twitter shit lords are. And, you know, that's obviously something we all feel. I'm not I'm not super <laughs> surprised that you don't heavily resonate with an artist whose entire emo in this particular era is just basically screaming about how rad his therapist is. Like <laughs> that's that's why I hate to do this just because you've obviously given Jeff a lot of, you know, chances and you're obviously like he's got a ceiling with you, but the album that you're looking for is We Cool because that's the album where he is like the least preoccupied with, you know, things within a modern context and it's really more again it's that menzingers wonder years core singing about getting trashed every night and feeling like shit like that kind of stuff 
Uh, and it feels like the more he's gone along, the more he's kind of just sort of baked this into his identity. And I agree with you. Like, it has its place. And I love when he does that sometimes. But I, I do kind of hope that maybe this album will be a nice transitional step for him to go to a new place. Because thematically, that's what it feels like for him. Like, he's growing. And, you know, I want to see the results of that growth. What happens next? Jeff occupies a valuable place as a kind of punk representative of modern concerns and realities and issues, right? So for a lot of people, he's really important for the exact reason that he has a very different approach to bands like the Wonder Years and the Menzingers, who are, as great as those bands are, the philosophy and the ethos from which they operate is fairly dime a dozen. I think, you know, the sort of singer songwriter types who are taking up the mantle of expressing the concerns of this generation are also fairly dime a dozen. That's a good, that's um, a good point. I suppose. That's and, and that's, that's part of my sort of reticence with this album in particular. It's like, Oh, it's called hell mode. And it's about how much everything sucks now. And I'm like, dude, I know. I know. Say something new. Morgan isn't even technically on Twitter and he knows. <laughs> yeah. Well, and again, I don't want to overstate the degree to which the album is that because the thing with Jeff is that he's always been great at blending the the contextual reality of the culture he lives in with the things that are the most intimate concerns that he has. I mean, what makes We Cool and Worry so resonant is that those are fundamentally albums about your closest relationships. Like We Cool yeah. is about, you know, the people that you got drunk with and the, the connections that you made as a young person now that you're growing into your 30s and those people are going away or growing up. And then Worry is just, Worry is about like loving someone so much that you get mad at how now you have to care about the world because you love someone and because yeah. you care about what happens to them. And that dynamic is such a huge part of what makes that record work. And yeah. And, and, and since then it's been a little bit more, you know, my life is more steady. And so here are the things that keep me up at night. And, and that's, I guess, where you stay on versus get off the train a little bit, but yeah, you know, Jeff was also in the news this week because he had a, I don't want to call it a feud because Jeff's kind of been very a clear spat. about well, I don't want to, I don't even want to call it, talk about it in those terms because Jeff was very clear after this happened about like yeah. you know, people turning this into drama. We're, we're not only missing the point, but diluting it, um, which was that Jeff yeah. uh, spoke up about and he actually posted a spreadsheet of, of merch cut rates that various venues charged, you know, so what percentage of merch earnings that various venues across America were taking basically as a way of being like, Hey, we, as you know, touring musicians need to talk about this more transparently need to speak up about this more, need to put more pressure on, you know, on venues essentially to stop taking money from us that they don't need basically. And that we need as well, you know, and to acknowledge the inherent, you know, imbalance and the dynamic between venues and performers. And but but all that people talked about was the fact that um that Steve Albini, Steve Albini. somewhat admittedly somewhat tone deafly uh quote tweeted him. And I think the point that that Steve was trying to make is that 
it's kind of not that different to the point that Jeff was trying to make. It's just that Steve's kind of antisocial and didn't make it particularly and, eloquently. And frankly old. Which is yeah. just that um, artists have a lot more power than they maybe think. And, 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 you know, Steve certainly spoke about his experiences not having to as much difficulty with merch cuts as maybe Jeff has had. Um, but ultimately what the whole conversation boiled down to was just the need to, you know, be vocal about these things and to, mm-hmm. you know, and I, it's, it's, you know, coming out as well of within the entertainment industry as well. And for the world of artists as well, we're in the middle, still in the middle of the, you know, of the writer's strike, uh, as well and so that kind of that i feel like is now starting to have a kind of flow on effect into other areas of yeah where it's like these various injustices you know these various ways in which you know creatives are screwed over you know now more than ever there is a platform and an audience for legitimate righteous concerns about those injustices so yeah that was um it was a huge part of the mu- online music discourse this week. And it was, a, it was a shame to see the core point of it get a little bit lost in the drama or in the squabbles. Although I will say it was simultaneously delightful and annoying to be reminded of the existence of Propagandi, a band I admittedly haven't listened to, but I, I know of. Good band. I know of because John K. Sampson of the Weaker Thans was in that band. Uh, but they had to get in on it and be like, you know, t- big words. We- bands love to talk shit when, you know, kids in sweatshops make their merch, which was just so out of pocket because that no. was true of Jeff. And Je- Jeff was like, like after like all of the drama kind of subsided, he was just like, I love, you know, Steve Albini. I love Propagandi. They're great bands. I just don't want the point of what I'm saying to get lost in the minutia. And I feel like it's important to remember that like as a consumer, because in terms of at least like what this means in relation to you as a music listener, you should be supporting smaller musicians that you love. You should be, you know, like buying merch, buying vinyl, buying physical media or whatever, because, you know, they don't make money off streaming anymore. So, you know, doing that is important. And if people are like, I don't like the idea of some venue like scamming Jeff Rosenstock out of 30% or whatever fucking outlandish cut that they take when I want that money, my money to go to Jeff. So that kind of shit is important and you need to keep that in mind. It really does feel like people are starting to actively think about things and, you know, consume things a little bit more carefully, not like widespread. This isn't your average everyday Joe deciding to be a fucking communist or whatever, but in online spaces, at least it feels like people are starting to actively engage in this discourse a little bit more, which I think is a net good for the world of music. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the the propaganda thing was like an example of something you see a lot in these kinds of situations when someone is speaking up for a concern like this, which is, you know, trying to highlight some kind of perceived hypocrisy as if in some way, because like, what, what do you, what do you, if you're the guy in propaganda, what are you looking to achieve with that call out? Right. Do you, does he, do you implicitly believe that the point that Jeff is making is invalid? Like, Okay, imagine if Jeff did, you know, have, you know, little little Chinese laborers making his merch, which he doesn't, but imagine if he did, right? Would that, would that Then make, fuck him. <laughs> but would that make his point- Remove about, that. Would that. 
would that make his point about merch cuts any less valid? No, it wouldn't. No, not so even a little. Why do we choose these opportunities to point out these kinds of irrelevant hypocrisies? It just drove me. It just drove fucking, me. It's no, just it's fucking me. Twitter. It's everybody just trying to get a gotcha, you know, like, oh, I'm going to post a reply and get a zinger. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's propaganda like, oh, we haven't been relevant for 20 years. How can we get relevant? Let's fucking piggyback off of topic of the day on music Twitter. It's just like, bro. I, you know, I can't imagine they were doing that for relevancy's sake. Um, Interesting I think you that call was your more... band propaganda when Gandhi himself was quite a problematic figure. How do you like it's it exactly now? Exactly what they're doing, where it's like something that plagues the online left, and frankly, I'm sure has plagued the left since before online was a thing. Uh, is just that like the reason we never get anywhere is because nobody can ever decide on which direction to go in because somebody always has to have some some snappy one-liner about oh it's funny about uh you're complaining about merch rates when uh your shirts are made by little curious that you participate in society like you are a socialist yet you have a home no more infighting we're done stop it everybody Uh, yeah i mean good luck with that i mean this is is why we never get anywhere with anything ever and no progress will be made and why we'll all die it is because no like somebody always has to be the smartest commie in the room and it's just like i just i hate all of you Karl marx would like me the best stop arguing about dead men and fucking do something shut up or don't do something i mean it's not like you can go to bed i don't fucking care what you do with your life just log off or like i don't know in the case of propaganda make music Get in the studio and take an edible or something. I don't fucking know. Write a diss track if you care that much. Like, make it. No, I'm not gonna listen to that. But that would that would be like when Prince did that when he was going on his like crusade towards copyright, and he made a diss track against the people who were like trying to fight against him being all copyright strike happy on YouTube. Does anybody fucking remember that shit? And that's how you do it. If you know you're going to be, you have this unstoppable desire to be a self-righteous idiot and call someone out, don't do a fucking quote tweet. There's nothing fun about a quote tweet. There's never been anything fun about a quote tweet. It's, it's, it's not a even song. a quote tweet. It's a, it's a subtweet, which is the lowest <laughs> form of tweet. R- Riley, that may be it, the it most profound thing you've ever said on this podcast is that there is nothing funny about a quote tweet. I say you're that. so right. I, I say that, and most of the things I like on Twitter are probably quote tweets. So it's, it's yeah. Funny. See, uh, no, you're you're succumbing. You're shit. succumbing to the infighting, Riley. You're just like ah, oh, but yet I like quote tweets. No, don't do it. No, it's and my point. I rest my fucking case. Just, we're never going to get out of this hole. On a lighter note, I want to talk about a few albums that mean a lot to me that are celebrating big anniversaries this week as we record i wrote (laughs) so one of them is uh the arctic monkeys am which came out 10 years ago this week an album that was inescapable if you were in high school at that age every girl i knew and most of my friends at that time were girls Mm -hmm. do i want to know was just inescapable um yep 
honestly like an album that i've been really up and down over the years on like i i was so into that album when it came out because all of my friends liked it and because it kind of slapped to be honest and then i kind of went through a phase where i was just like really rebelling against my arctic monkeys enjoyment and now i've kind of come back around to really valuing basically all of the first well i don't really like suck it and see very much but the other four of the first five arctic monkeys albums i have a great deal of affection for um and and am is just like it occupies this weird space of i don't know it was just like it was the the weird potential of crossover pop rock at that time you know it was just lana del rey born to die arctic monkeys am i was just listening to that shit so much it's a band that it's a band in an album i associate with my knowledge of at least because there was this girl who rode my bus and eventually like i started talking to this girl because i had a crush on her and of course the three bands that she talked about like endlessly were arctic monkeys vampire weekend and uh if anybody remembers this band mariana trench uh those three were like the first band yeah right those bands were like the first time i got a glimpse into like that indie kid scene and i was just like sure i know what those bands are and it's also notable as well like i'm just getting fully into my nostalgic shit right now because last month uh the first 1975 album turned 10 as well and that was now that was actually not a record that was not a record that i got It was not a record I got into until around the time of the second album uh, from them, but like it is just so 2013, like putting that shit on and hearing robbers and hearing chocolate and hearing sex. It just, it, it, it's a real take me back. And and I, I, (laughs) it's just so funny how well that music has aged for me, at least anyway, because at the time Mm -hmm. it was stuff that I, you know, I, I either liked it, but felt this really deep seated guilt for liking it because I was this hipster and that shit was not cool. Or it was stuff that I just pretty, like didn't allow myself to like, like I just refused to mm. let myself like at the time. And then as I got a little bit older, it just became like a total fucking lifeline and, and so emblematic of this phase of my life. Anyway, Arctic Monkeys AM holds up to be honest like do i want to know slaps are you mine slaps why do you want to call me when you're high slaps snap out of it slaps yeah there's filler on that record but it's just the whole aesthetic and the feel of it is so like unified and sexy and just it's a vibe it's a fucking 3 a.m vibe and it's wearing a leather jacket and pretending you're cooler than you are and it's so funny that uh alex turner got away with that it's so funny that alex turner was able to pull off that whole like i'm gonna be really sexy and i'm gonna wear leather jackets and i'm gonna be an actual like mckiss going on stage looking like joey ramone well yeah because alex turner we're only like two album cycles removed from humbug where alex turner's whole thing was like being the world's most you know unfuckable Hmm. loser basically You know, if you've ever seen the Cornerstone music video, <laughs> in that era, you know, him in the fucking sweater. And then like, you know, just however many years later we're doing AM and he's like a fucking rock god. And then he threw it all away with Tranquility Base and he chose to be this weird, you know. Alien. And now he's like millennial Dan Behar. Yeah. Well, and, and you know what? And that's the thing. Even if I don't resonate a lot with the more recent music, 
I mean, I always still like some of it. Like there's, there's great songs on both of those last two Arctic Monkeys albums. I respect Alex Turner for just being able to pull off the weird shifts in like self image and aesthetic and, you know, just the, the, the shit that he does. I'm, I'm always in awe of him. And, and to me, nothing was more bold and more impressive in terms of how he was able to pull it off than the whole AEM era. Uh, because whether or not that record is something you enjoy or not, I'm getting a distinct vibe from the silence that Morgan maybe hates this era of Arctic Monkey. Oh, no, no I, I, I just haven't been able to get a word in edgewise. No, um, it's, it is a good album that I never want to hear again. Yeah, for as long as I live. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. But the fact that for a for a hot minute there, and maybe this is a testament to like the weird place that that pop culture was at at that time. But the idea that Arctic Monkeys could be one of the biggest bands in the world, the idea that they could be as big in weird. America anyway, especially as they were. Because if you go back to that early era Arctic Monkey stuff, it is like frighteningly British first three arctic monkeys albums are fucking great that first arctic monkeys album i actually can't went back to that i threw that on randomly like three or four months ago and i was like fuck this is good shit Didn't, like josh homie produced one of those josh homie produced humbug um that's right or at least part partly produced it co-produced it and he is on a that's right actually. he plays sings on the song knee socks which i know because yeah, I-, I mean that's that's what alex turner is doing on that album is that he's just being josh yeah. homie exactly alex turner is deciding i am going to be you know songs for the deaf era josh homie that's the aesthetic i'm going to adopt and you know he pulls it off you know british and lankier and pastier yeah i like this is so much more popular this is this thing as well like i i was not out with myself really at the time that i was into this but deep down i knew that I wanted to fuck him really bad. <laughs> yeah. I I have that until I listen to him like speak. Because so I have this like very long ago memory from like a live music video. If I, I bet you look good on the dance floor where he goes, with Arctic Monkeys, don't believe the hype. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you sound and then they like start, that? And then they, yeah. But then they start playing the fucking hardest song you've ever heard. Yeah like that it's, exactly it's like all right maybe you can stay yeah anyway moving along i want to just i don't want to spend too much time on these but i want to very quickly shout out three albums that turned 20 this week three very very different albums but that all meant a lot to me when i was a teenager now, the first is uh the fantastic sophomore album from indie folk luminaries the decemberists her majesty the decemberists turned 20 this week I, I fucking love this album. It is like maybe their fourth best, but I fucking love it. For a lot of people, this is the Decemberists album. If you were like really, really into them, like in 2003, or if you were really, really zoned into kind of like folk music in 2003, this is it. Um, great record. Really wanted to shout that out. Uh, My Morning Jackets, It Still Moves, like on the opposite side of yeah. nerdy music guy culture. I mean, Decemberists- Kentucky it, Native. Decemberists is nerdy music guy in the sense that I read books and shit. And uh, my morning jacket is nerdy music guy in the sense that I know, you know, 
I I know every brand of guitar that's ever been invented. I got really into Tom Petty when I was 20. Yeah, exactly. It Still Moves and Z are like both amazing albums, but It Still Moves is like for a certain brand of, of like dad who's like, you know, who was probably like 30 when this came out. This is like one of the defining guitar albums of the You're 20- talking about Stephen Hyden. Yeah, this is one of the defining guitar albums of the 21st century so far. The, the the playing on this record, it's like it flirts with being a jam record, but never quite commits. It is a long album, has some long ass songs on it, but it is just like guitar porn for 70 minutes. It's just ridiculous. I want a slice of it. Check out the track One Big Holiday, which is one of the most famous MMJ songs. The guitar playing on that track is you know, it would make Hendrix blush. You know, there was an era where that band was just untouchable and it still moves as a great encapsulation of it. I like Z, the follow-up album, a little bit more because that album's kind of a little bit more, it's got its head on its shoulders a little bit more. It's a little bit more tempered. It's got a little bit more um, tightly wound song structures and a little bit more variation in how the sound and how they land the sound but both those records are are fantastic and um so i wanted to give a shout out because i don't think we've ever acknowledged this band and yeah kentucky native so um yeah rip resent uh mr jim jones no jim james jim jones one of the, one yeah, of those <laughs> wrong one name them, one of them is oh, the yeah. guy from my morning jacket and the other one is like it's a the kool-aid man so yeah <laughs> um what are you referring to Jim Jones as the Kool-Aid man is one of the funniest fucking things he's ever said. Jim James what he is. is the guy from my Jim James is the guy from my morning jacket. I'm like Homer Simpson with the um Lenny White Carl Black on my hand. <laughs> <laughs> Cat in the anyway, check that out. Uh last album that's and most significant album that turned 20 this week. Uh we have a video on this record. When I was 17, this was my favorite album of all time, as I'm sure I said in that uh, video. Yeah. The Wrens, Meadowlands, Turn 20 This Week. Amazing album. Fucking listen to it if you if you've we have, heard it. We have said our piece on this sucker. It is one of the most emo. It is it, it is one of the emo albums of all time. <laughs> it is emos just... for people who just like again it's it's like the my morning jacket album for people who fucking love guitar tones well yeah it's like it's just it's like american football for people who wish that band were a little tiny bit more classic rock you know it's, yeah, yeah just a little less yeah. noodly yeah mm-hmm. it, it, that's basically what um meadowlands is and you know that that album is where is the genesis for my for all the emo that I love and all of the aspects of my musical taste that even relate to emo, basically everything comes back to Meadowlands. Uh, I heard that album before I heard American football. I heard that album before I heard Jimmy world. I heard that album before I heard sunny day real estate. That was my ground zero <laughs> and it holds up Th- 13 months and six minutes is one of the best fucking songs ever made. That is my favorite breakup song of all time. Easily up there for me too. Yeah. I mean, it's either that or, um, my backwards walk either way you're in for a, you're in for a bad time Pain. another thing i want to shout out is that none other than the rolling stones are back with their huh. first new album and i believe 18 years first album of new of original material in 18 years since i think it was 2005's a bigger bang was the last one 
Uh, I was made aware of this. I work in an office with people who are older than me, and I have a coworker, <laughs> who a father who's really into the Rolling Stones, who made me aware of this like many, many days ago before I was seeing it in, on Twitter and stuff. New album's called Hackney Diamonds, uh, and look, we have complicated history with the Rolling Stones. A lot of people probably won't know because we haven't talked about them in a while. But we did do a record club on uh, Exile on Main Street, where we talked about it in conjunction with Liz Fear's Exile in Guyville, which is a response album, sort of, kind of. It's a great episode, by the way. Uh, It is a great episode. And I remember distinctly, you know, I went into that episode really, really enthusiastic about that album because I've always liked the Rolling Stones, you know, the big four run basically from beggar's banquet to that album as a teenager but then it was like i was greeted with like the 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 tone of that conversation was so hostile to that record in a way that i wasn't expecting so yeah that was that was a really interesting conversation that we had about that album this is one of my biggest musical blind spots that's the only stones album i've heard in its entirety I think you would really fuck with Sticky Fingers. That album is like... <coughs> Roll up, my doja. Sorry, that was just a really funny sentence. I think you would really Jehovah. fuck with Sticky Fingers. Ew. That album's really great. It's Gross. 10 songs, front to back, excellent. Uh, Sticky Fingers and Let It Bleed are both just, in my opinion, fairly peerless. You know, they're both like 40, 45 minutes. They're really to the point. Uh, we we kind of jumped into them with with an album that is very deliberately messy and all over the place. Their white album. But anyway, they're back with Hackney Diamonds and this lead single, Angry, which, you know... Which, which is it's... not one of those great songs. <laughs> with its Saint Anger evoking cover art, I just... I, I, I... Okay, so what do we think of the song? I mean, Jake's kind of already flagged that i i'm gonna sound like i'm gonna sound like morgan here for a sec and just be like oh dear listen Mick Jagger, you are so old (laughs) like i i can't get past the fact that this dude's like delivery is like it's so close to like him in his heyday that it almost sounds good but there's just there's just enough agedness in his voice for him to hit this vocal refrain over and over and over again, and it's like it, I mean, like, it, mm, sandpaper. Ugh, I do not care for like the like everything about it is like it's very big, it's very loud, it's very in your face, and I just I there's no in for me with the song. Like I think the hook is kind of unbearable. Here's the thing with this song for me. It's so like Rolling Stones type beat. Yeah. So that, that I kind of like it. Like it makes me smile (laughs) in a certain way because of how fucking obvious everything about it is. Yeah, I see. I can see that. That's more or less my feeling. I mean, I don't, unless we review the album, which I don't know, maybe. We could. um, I will. I will never listen to this song again, but I didn't hate it or anything. It's just like, it's literally. (laughs) The Rolling Stones are weird because it's like, I don't think, I do think they're overrated, but it's like, I don't know. I don't want, I don't wish. I don't want a world without them. Yeah. I don't wish they were any less a part of rock music history than they were. 
Um, you know, there was a period in the late sixties, you know, it's hard to think about it now. It's hard to think of them as like progressive or like cutting edge or like even all that artistic, just because their whole image and aesthetic has been so like hedonistic and like, you know, dumb blues riff type beat sort of shit. But you know, there was a period in the late sixties where they made a movie with Jean-Luc Godard. They were doing like all kinds of weird shit. <laughs> You know, they they made a fucking yeah. full on psych rock album in 1966 before the Beatles did. Like they were they were doing some really innovative stuff, and they never stopped like genuinely caring about the music they were making. Oh yeah, even if sometimes it didn't always appear that way. Yeah, you know, I've got major respect for them. Overrated is such a useless classification in yeah. the context of a band this size. It's like, do you think Led Zeppelin's overrated? Probably, but who cares? This question will either <sighs> feel really obvious or it won't. But are we all Beatles over Stones? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, see, I, I don't like, care. Like I am, but it is like one of those things where it's like, I wonder if I've taken that, the obviousness of that for granted a bit much because I do really love the stones records that i love so and i but i feel like for for some reason like you know they acquire this reputation of being like less artistically validated or whatever than the beatles they're the kind of like mm -hmm. diet alternative for the people who want to cut the pretension and just get straight to the meat right and i feel like that maybe has undersold them a little bit over the years anyway the new song is look it's yeah it is just the most <sighs> If you like the Rolling Stones, you will probably like this song to some extent. I got a kick out of watching the music video and seeing, like you said, Jake, how gratuitously it presents Sydney Sweeney's cleavage at every possible. I mean, it's literally just like Mick Jagger car sydney sweeney's tits like that's it that's like, all it is. is must have been just like sydney could you arch your back over the fucking hood of that car a little bit more for me please and, i mean you know <laughs> she has the power to not do that and she does it yeah mm -hmm. so frankly we should just be happy with how all this turned out that's empowerment um it, but it was funny as well like for so, her i guess seeing I all the all the billboards as well where it's like you know older versions of the rolling stones singing this mm -hmm. song and the newer version of the rolling stones as well it's just i don't know also what are they so fucking angry about i don't what what's the problem what do you got to be angry about mick is that a diet coke <laughs> let's move on um does keith, does keith richards have blue hair in this video or am i hallucinating something. the real question is does he have pronouns yeah i was getting there <laughs> all right enough of that crap let's talk about real art video games morgan I video I know games man morgan i know you <laughs> i know you've been playing a lot of borders gate 3 and starfield recently why don't you tell us a little bit about those games very hyped games that have been talked about in the culture a lot and a lot of excessive praise i've seen heaped on them especially the borders gate why don't you tell us a little bit about what these games are and whether or not you think they hold up to the hype i think i'll start with uh, starfield first uh, starfield the first bethesda title and it's been eight years since fallout 4 and i can feel my bones Jesus. turning to dust stop stop yeah. it. well i mean uh, there, there was Fallout seventy six, so I guess that's not was even there. true. But the only there. thing I know about this new game 
is that video of the guy who threw a fucking fit because the British guy who just had a complete meltdown because you got to choose your pronouns. Because <laughs> yeah, there's blue hair and pronouns in Starfield. Uh, oh, Christ. Read a science and, fiction and novel, you plebeians. A lot of expectations. And this this hues much closer to, to your fallouts than it does your your Elder Scrolls. Um, you know, Skyrim is what it is. I, I think the only game that I have more hours logged in is Bloodborne. And even then, I can't really tell that just because of all of the consoles that I've had Skyrim on you in my me. life. Unlike Bloodborne, though, Skyrim is a game that I never need to play again for the rest of my life. I have played it and you know i'm just i'm interested in different kinds of rpgs now so diving into starfield i i handed uh your boy phil spencer your uh yours i think the ultimate game pass subscription is 17 bucks but i just got it for console so it was like 11 and played this brand new triple a title which still seems illegal to me um that's that's pretty nuts but you know this is the first game that bethesda has released since uh being acquired by microsoft uh, and thus it is a oh yeah pc and xbox exclusive so straight to game pass and um there's a lot there's been a lot of discourse about starfield and it's just like the game feels simultaneously like it, it is it is the, the next best thing that Bethesda could do and also a game from 10 years ago. There's nothing different about the gameplay loop from Skyrim. I mean, obviously it's more graphically powerful, uh, but it doesn't look much better, really. I mean, just due to art design and all that, a lot yeah. of the planets are fugly. Some of, some of them look very nice. Which I th- I sort of admire the the tactic of because I mean why in this giant galaxy would every planet look good to be in? That's true. Why would all of them have interesting things to explore in? Veering dangerously close to talking about No Man's Sky here. I was thinking about it. And I wasn't going to say anything. Hey, I mean, there's more stuff here. I'll I'll say that. I don't doubt that. I, I just on the way to the main quest earlier today, I stopped by this planet that was putting out a distress beacon and I hailed them. I said on screen like Patrick Stewart in the next generation. I, I said I said that to myself alone in my room. I said on I screen. I could believe you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it was like, hey, we're uh, th- these space pirates have knocked out the communication relays between our colonies can you help put those back together and i was like sure and then i fought some space pirates in a in a in a space dog fight and then i put the satellites back together and i was like hey i've talked to everybody again and we need you to seven samurai us from these space pirates and i was like fucking baller dude and then i did that and i was like i'm living my best life right now this is peak nothing is better than this and then I got back in my spaceship and went back to the main quest. And I was like, this is fine. Uh, so <laughs> it's truly the Skyrim dilemma. I will say it is head and shoulders better than Fallout 3 and 4, both of which suck. 
for the record. I I honestly like Fallout 4 more than 3, which is not, you know, the popular opinion to have uh, because it's a much dumber game, but at least it, like, it does not... I don't hate looking at it. Well, yeah, there's that, but it also does not presume to be, like, an RPG with, like, meaning or consequence. It's streamlined. Morgan, I like how how consistently and i know this isn't true universally true but it's just my perception every time you talk about like a big uh like triple a game your attitude often ends up being like like trump with the diet coke thing where it's like that's fine you keep putting this shit out i'll keep buying this trash (laughs) what is i mean uh, like in in the lead up to this i was i just it just wasn't really on my radar because i was so like after Fallout 4 and so like fucking Todd Howard out of my house and he sits upon a throne of lies and I pick up the game because it cost me literally like $12 and I was like oh I've sunk five hours straight into this today I can't say anything decisive about it because I'm only I think 10 hours total in in this absolutely massive exploratory game but it's it is like idealized gamer junk food where like you have your Assassin's Creed's and you know, your Ubisoft open world stuff that just doesn't... Yeah. That is the gamer junk food that's going to kill you eventually. And this is the junk food that is just like, you just imbibe in this because it's your your one remaining vice. Vacant but enjoyable Bethesda open world explore, exploration simulators are my junk food. It's occurring to me that how you and I approach music and games respectively is the inverse of each other because i'm with music i'm like i'll listen to fucking anything give me that slop whereas you're like i need to be really wanting to listen to an album to put this yeah yeah that's how i am with games like if i don't think i'm gonna really enjoy a game and certainly if i start playing one and i'm not instantly smitten i'm not gonna fucking go back to that shit i'm done but yet I'm I, I have the biggest sunk costs, the biggest like complete disregard of filter with music. I will just put fucking anything on. I just find that interesting how we have this opposing dynamic with, with music and games. I suppose it says a lot about how yeah. we get our, you know, cheap satisfaction and serotonin. Life. Yeah, and I mean like I will say the first three hours of Starfield with any Bethesda game fucking suck. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the Skyrim tutorial the... fucking like fast forward you cannot design yeah. games like TV shows where it's like oh you just gotta get through the first few hours and then it gets good that's uh, just dude, like... like Final Fantasy fans will be like Final Fantasy 13 doesn't get good until 20 hours in they, <laughs> it's like they well, literally so many people say this like, so many well, first, people like well first of all no it doesn't <laughs> Because that every part doesn't, that, and second of all, that's half the game. Yeah, if like all of that game blows, but like the first three hours of Starfield are literally just like you're a miner and you go find this neurodivergent. A miner. I. You're you, you're mining space rocks, uh, that kind of miner, and it's literally just like you find you find this artifact while you're mining, and then you somebody's like they're come with us and like the first... life is draining from you as you try to give a basic plot summary. <laughs> it's it's like it sucks so hard and the reason it sucks is because there is all of this issues with fallout 4 
and the plot of that being like why like the 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 inciting incident of that game is that your wife dies and somebody kidnaps your child so it's like why it makes no sense to explore this open world when you are trying to find your child so it's literally like they're compensating for this by giving you the most boring template to bounce off of and the difficulty of that is that yes that's better once you're into the game but the like the opening of it is just like what is any of this it, it seems like there is a trend and in, in, and again I'm, I'm not trying to speak above my pay grade here as someone who's not a pro gamer tm but it seems like there is a trend in that's what of, i am in a lot of um you know triple a game design in recent years where it's like this fixation on the idea of like preserving or creating the most expansive and boundless experience possible basically where it's like this idea of gamer freedom you know which is like you know the whole co- the whole philosophy of that kind of turns my stomach because my kind of philosophy is like you know and i guess all of this comes back all this is probably the genesis of all of this is, is probably breath of the wild to a certain extent which is such a great game that you want to do you you buy into that philosophy but generally my whole attitude is like these things are works of art like these things should be chiseled you know they, they should be designed you know, you i, I don't want to i don't want to with the exception of zelda i suppose i don't want to play a game where it's like you make the adventure or you decide what the adventure is going to be or you you know do anything i want you no 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 no. give me a thing <laughs> you know don't just say oh well it's up to you no i want to i want a story i want to like I want to, I want to, you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's why Nintendo is the only company to have done this properly and correctly with the two Zelda games is because that's a company whose design philosophy has been and will always be a series of tightly woven systems that you have to intentionally use for specific things. And the fact that those two big games that they made are just really expansive and big are just one in a million. Like it's, it's those two games in a sea of games that are nothing else like it. And everybody else has been chasing that game's coattails since. I just think it's that the, 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 the joy of a very directed and singular experience is maybe a little bit undervalued now. Oh yeah. In this, like, I agree totally. In, in this massive open world world of possibilities. Anyway, I kind of need to rush you along. Why don't we get to Baldur's Gate three? Because I'm quite curious. Yeah, about this game. I've heard a lot of good things. Yeah, about same. This game. Um, why don't you tell us about it? So th- this game, its proximity to Starfield came out about a month ago on PC, but Baldur's Gate three just hit PS five earlier this week on the same day as Starfield actually, and I have about thirty hours in that in comparison to like my 10 in Starfield. So a bit of background is that, you know, Baldur's Gate takes place in uh, the Forgotten Realms, Dungeons and Dragons. It always has since the first two PC RPGs from I think 98 and 2000 respectively. Two classics. Those were, yeah, those were Bio, Bioware's first games who would, you know, later go on to make Knights of the Old Republic and then, you know, Mass, Mass Effect, Effect and Dragon Age and so on on the note of companies whose reputations are in fucking shambles. Um, <laughs> so this is the sequel to those two games, you know, a 23 year gap in this mm-hmm. franchise. Now the difference between this game 
and the last two is that it's made by uh, Larian Studios, which is a, I don't know what part of Eastern Europe they're from, or I think it might be Northern Europe. I don't know exactly, but they're a European uh, company who made, who most came into the public eye for making the game Divinity Original Sin 2, uh, which is my fourth or fifth favorite game of all time. If it interests either of you, it's on the Switch and runs fairly well, to my knowledge. It is the peak of the role-playing game. Uh, it has my favorite turn-based combat system ever. And Did you say turn-based combat? I'm listening. Yeah, but it's... Well, I, yes, but it's also absolutely nothing like a JRPG turn-based combat. You'll It's easy enough to come to grips with, but there is a level of complexity and environmental importance that comes in that game that a JRPG would just, I mean, it just doesn't come anywhere close, really. Like, I don't think there's a system, even in something like Persona 5, which is my favorite game ever, I don't think the combat in that comes even close to Divinity. And so really, I'm approaching this as the follow-up to Divinity Original Sin 2, as opposed to, like, the Dungeon Dragon simulator to end all Dungeons & Dragons simulators. I was just so unbelievably excited for this game, and I've, I've sunk about 30 hours into it. I have no idea how far into it I actually am. I might prefer the combat in Divinity a little more, but, you know, that's just, like, 130 hours in Divinity compared to 30 hours in Baldur's Gate. I mean, it's just hard to say. You know, I haven't finished the game yet, so it's hard to know where all that will end up. It's probably the most polished and incredibly well put together uh, Western RPG I've ever played. I think the, you know, the gold standard for like polish and presentation up until this point was probably Dragon Age Inquisition. Um, and this makes that game look uh, childlike in comparison. It's impossible at this rate to fathom just how deep and complex and rewarding this game is going to be. It's like the complete opposite of what player freedom means in a game like Breath of the Wild or Tears of the Kingdom in the sense that so much of what the gameplay loop in Tears of the Kingdom or Breath of the Wild is is like, oh, hey, what's that thing over there? I'm going to go do that. So that's what player choice means in those games. And what player choice means in Baldur's Gate is like saying this thing to this person will then mean that you were engaged in this battle with this faction of people. You know, you could have said something in the dialogue system that completely subverts that possibility and, you know, changes the way that the progression of the narrative goes like a chain like of, i remember like a chain of consequence idea exactly i mean there's a lot of combat in the game and i think there's about as much dialogue which uh the best thing i've played all year for the first time is disco elysium oh um, i fucking love that game i fucking yeah. love that game and you know that game is just dialogue yeah um, and, you know it's it's basically the same Baldur's gate 3 it basically works the same as it does there uh, it's just broken up with turn-based combat systems. Have you played Disco Elysium, Jake? Because I'm just—I'm I'm, going to be real with you. I don't know a single fucking thing about Disco Elysium. Well, I know I had... everybody I know loves it, 
I don't even know what kind of game it is. I just had a moment where I just flashed and it was like, this that could potentially with with you playing it that could potentially be our next doki doki literature club oh my god it is yes it is like i'm 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 so in i don't even know like i'm i'm in i'm absolutely in davy will be in too assuredly just because it is like in terms of a a recorded experience you know it is it is a dialogue based game so um and you shouldn't know perfect about it than that um but yeah okay and it would be ve- it'll be very it would it would be very entertaining um so uh, sorry I, not to divert yeah that that is a, an a plus game like i've not played yeah. now looking forward to this hypothetical thing clearly the oversight for larian studio studios and the way that this game has ended up has been take all of the time and resources that you need we will do this for you because this is you're putting together the product that we want to represent Dungeons and Dragons in gaming right now. And that has paid off tenfold already just in the critical reception that this game has got. If it's higher rated on Metacritic right now than even Tears of the Kingdom. Truly the Olivia Rodrigo guts of games. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, 2023 is going to go down as like one of the years of gaming ever. Because my top 10... First year this, this decade, year. I've actually felt incentivized to play video games. Well, I mean, that's more your fault than anything, because there have been some fucking mm. spectacular titles. I mean, if Elden Ring didn't move you, then I don't know what... Anyway, point is, my top five of this year is like Tears of the Kingdom, Resident Evil 4 remake, Final Fantasy 16. Final Fantasy 16 is at number three, and that's stupid. Probably number four, once I'm done with Baldur's Gate 3. Starfield is a game that I will probably put 50 hours into when all said and done, and it will not even crack my top 10 of this year, most likely. It's just an obscenity, and I am so poor. The titles that we remember are probably going to be like Tears of the Kingdom and Baldur's Gate 3. Because, And this has been a big discourse of like, does a game that's had basically, for all intents and purposes, infinite resources put into it, do, it, it is that fair to make that the standard bearer? for mm-hmm. quality in role-playing games versus, you know, hey, maybe it's not crazy to be like, games should be this good, or at least this polished and well-realized and released on a time that is healthy for, you know, developers and the game itself. The The bar has been raised by a single game, essentially. It's more influential than Tears of the Kingdom will be just because Breath of the Wild beat that game to the punch. So it's like, there are going to be a lot of games that are trying to do what Baldur's Gate 3 tries to do. And fr- I, I can only see that as a good thing. It's a bit it's a bit like when The Witcher 3 came out and then Assassin's Creed, yeah, yeah. for instance, pivoted to completely open world and like a dialogue tree. And it's like, you're just cribbing so hard from this and you you can't do it. You don't have it in you. But like, I admire the tact. Let's move on and talk about one more, one more thing to talk about in this now episode, which is the new album from Slow Dive. Wanted to give it a bit of a moment because Slow Dive are a band that we love greatly, that we have, uh, you know, uh, that we have, we haven't actually talked about them on the show all that much. I mean, we've had, you know, the every often, so often we've had one of those segments where Jake talks about, 
you know, the 1500 listens of Suvaka he's been giving that week. But for the record, you know, like Jake's not the only slow dive fan here. We all love slow dive and we're all very excited to have them back this week with their new album. Everything is alive, which feels a little bit like a, I don't want to, I don't want to say an ironic or sarcastic title because they're not really an ironic or a sarcastic band, but it's an interesting title because, oh yeah, there we go. We've got that. That's yeah. 4.2 thousand scrabbles of Suvlaki. Yeah, which is fucking right. That's the truth, honestly. That album is is just it's a great album. It's not even my favorite slow dive album. It's my third place. What the fuck? No, it's third. Wow, shit. Yeah, I like Pygmalion more. Yeah, so I think that it, the the title feels a little bit you know, if not sarcastic or maybe a little bit tongue in cheek, just because this is a very mellow album from Slow Dive. It's what compared to their last album, which was the big comeback record and felt like Slow Dive making a comeback in the most sort of like demanding sense where they were making basically the loudest record they'd ever made. You know, this really skyscraping album that just completely demanded and filled every space that it occupied. One of the biggest albums of 2017 for me and a record that just still completely reduces me to dust every time I put it on. Uh, so it makes sense that Slow Dive now having kind of settled into this you know, existence as having been reformed and touring and occupying a place in the world after being broken up for so long, it makes sense that they would come back with something a little bit more mellow uh, to follow that record up. And I think that that maybe situates everything as a live and awkward position to potentially be a little bit overlooked. But I want to say straight off the bat that the joys of this record are, they're very special. This is a gorgeous, understated, slightly weary, but very beautiful album that feels like Rachel and Neil are allowing themselves to show their age and to kind of feel that, sense of exhaustion and resignation that comes with that with that comes with age in a way that doesn't shoot a hole through the feeling or the the vibe that you would expect from a slow dive record it makes it more measured it makes it more specific and limited in a certain sense in its appeal like I, the great thing about slow dive is that I can usually listen to them in any mood, no matter how I'm feeling, they'll have something that will augment that space. Whereas everything is alive is a record that hits for me really like in the dead of night, like when I'm feeling kind of shit and I can't really sleep and I just need something to kind of occupy that space. It's a beautiful little record. Uh, and Jake, I want to ask you to speak a little bit on this as well. And Tell us a little bit about what this album means to you as someone who's so, you know, besotted with Slow Dive to have them back again. This, of course, I think, pretty sure, the first Slow Dive album you've been kind of present for the release of as a fan. Mm -hmm. Tell us about uh, how Everything's Alive has been hitting for you. The 2017 self-titled is my favorite Slow Dive album, despite the fact that, you know, I've listened to Suvlaki enough in one lifetime to cover a few lifetimes. Um, but that that to me was the most fulfilling incarnation of their sound and just like it's very difficult for me to put why that's one of my like favorite fit like I'm pretty sure that's like a top 10 of all time for me 
And it's mostly just because all of my favorite slow dive songs are on that album. Like, I mean, No Longer Making Time is like top five song ever for me. Uh, that's just like, I like my life was different before I heard that song and it was irrevocably changed once I did hear it. So like naturally, like after that came, after like such a long period of silence, Slow Diver, a band that you're just kind of like, are we ever going to hear from this band again? Who knows? Those 90s shoegaze bands are fucking elusive. Who knows if Kevin Shields will drop another album, even though it's supposedly he's got two finished. But again, th th this is something that like a new Slow Dive album, a new My Bloody Valentine album or whatever is just like, it, I don't even think about it until it might happen. So when Kisses dropped, I was like, okay, let's listen to this. And I dug the fuck out of it mainly because it sounded like it was something that could have been right off of the self-titled. And as much as I do love that song, I've listened to it dozens and dozens and dozens of times, my prevailing thought was, what is this going to be album-wise once we get it, other than just more of the self-titled, which I'm not going to complain about, but the thing I love about Slow Dive, one of the reasons that they're one of my favorite bands is that each of their record ha records has such a distinct identity like their first album is very much indicative of that like post goth rock shoegaze like that initial kind of wave of stuff that's like yeah it's more primitive but it's still a really like it's still a really great shoegaze album and then of course you have Suvlaki feels like you know the 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 Brian Eno production just feels like you know this this constant ray of bathing light and then you have it into, you know, talk, talk, post rock in Melee. And you have the poppier, dreamier, louder sound of the self-titled. And I'm like, so are we just getting more of the same the first time? And when listening to the singles as they came out more and more, and they proved to be way more languaging than Kisses, I was kind of like, okay, this is definitely different, but I still don't know what this is yet. So I had to kind of wait until the full album was actually here. And then once it was here, the first time I listened to it, I was just kind of like, huh, like, I like this, but like, what? I, I just didn't really see what it did to carve out for itself in terms of like what it was, uh, because it was definitely different. I just I, I just didn't see the intent. And as I've listened to it more and more, as Riley said, a lot of it at night, it's kind of hit me as being like kind of obvious as to what it is in the if the last album was a reinvention of their sound, like that's the self-titled is their modern Suvlaki. And this is their Pygmalion. This is the Pygmalion to the self-titled in that it's basically using that sonic template and making something that is more structurally, I guess, long-winded and more ambient pop inclined. And that's not what a lot of people go to slow dive for, which is probably why this has been received, I guess, relatively lukewarmly amongst a lot of people. I get that, but I find it really fulfilling just because I like the idea of taking the Sonic toolkit that they established beforehand and making something willfully a little bit more challenging that suits a completely different purpose. Like, I can't just put on Pygmalion and get the same experience that I do with that album here. Like, this one is way, it has more forward momentum than that album does. But to me, it's a it's a distinct step in a direction that they have been in before, but not with the same tools that they've used in like recent years. So in that respect, I find it really interesting and I really love listening to it. 
but it is the slow dive album I feel like that contains maybe like you have to be in the most specific of a mood to get the most out of it, I guess. I've listened to this eight times front to back. So I have a, feel like I have a fairly good handle on it. And I agree that this is the slow dive album with the least, I suppose, sense of an identity for itself. Uh, it is very varied. It's seldom do you get two songs in a row that feel like they're offering a similar slice of what slow dive can do. The unifying factor is the slicker production style, which I was initially a little bit cold on when kisses dropped it just felt a little bit like some of the edge that i again again i was th thinking too much in the vein of the self-titled record i think which is such a a razory wiry just loud and distorted album and i was thinking mm -hmm. about these songs in comparison to that and so of course they're going to feel they're, of course they're very different in production approach so they're, they're, that distinction is going to stand out but consuming this album on its own and adjusting to the way the band have shift with their production approach here i've come to appreciate it a lot more actually kisses has really grown on me uh it's weird like i didn't vibe that much with kisses when it came out and then i was vibing a lot more with skin in the game and then i've kind of switched a little bit where skin in the game is still pretty good but i'm just i enjoy kisses a little bit more i find myself actually surprisingly most drawn to the really languid parts of this record tracks like Underloose me too plays which i think is a gorgeous mm -hmm. song and the opening track as well which is a real standout Shanty. For me too just a really beautiful dreamy landscape that doesn't i think need a lot more meat to i don't know it's just it, it, it works on its own in a very similar way to certain songs on pygmalion do as well where those that's yeah. an album just full of these little like fragments of ideas that are sort of looped for six or seven or, or there's, eight there's minutes. so much empty space on that album Absolutely. like it's it's a really minimal sparse kind of record yeah and i think there's moments of this record that go for that but then there's moments of this record like kisses where it feels like they're trying to be sharper than they've ever been mm -hmm. just in terms of like the songwriting structure and so the album has a weird refusal to commit to any one type of style or identity like there's just so much different aspects of slide slow dive across this thing and that's both a strength and a weakness uh in terms of an album it makes it feel like a bit of a jumbled experience i think it's also not helped by the sequencing of the album which i think is a bit strange um i don't know how i would resequence the record but I just know that it, it, the order of songs here just feels a little bit off to me, especially with a song like Prayer Remembered, which is this beautiful, very sparse, like one of the most just atmospherically immersive songs on the record that comes just far too early for a moment like that and goes far too quickly. So that's my biggest nitpick, I suppose. I also feel like that some of the potential of the longer tracks on here, like Chain to a Cloud, is not quite realized as well as it could. That song sort of just peters on and, and eventually sort of sputters out in a way that left me hanging a little bit but then you have the slab at the end which i think is a gr another great song that that really surprised me the first time i heard the record to hear this is the closest i think the album gets to the sound of the previous record and i really enjoyed that jolt of energy mm. and the final place so yeah it's a little bit over the play all over the place and so it takes a little bit to adjust to that i suppose but as someone who loves slow dive I found plenty to enjoy in this record and it certainly never felt like a chore to revisit it. 
it is just a little bit like uncertain of what it wants to be. And maybe that in itself is fine as an identity because maybe slow dive are a little bit uncertain of, of what they are and what they want to be going forward. And it is one of those albums that makes you think about, well, was it, is it just enough that we have new music from a band that haven't put out music in six or seven years? And then before that you're going back, you know, two decades. Are we at the point where it doesn't really bear to be fussy when still slow diver delivering something that only they could deliver so yeah i'm enjoying the record i'm a little bit sad that i'm not more into it but it is it does fulfill a certain vibe and it does feel as though they're trying new things and they're adapting their sound to a much more modern production style and i appreciate the effort there morian anything you want to add on everything is alive you know not much that's different from your take on it riley um I enjoy the album. Uh, I enjoy listening to it. I would I would revisit it. Everything on it is at least, you know, good. Doc, it just sort of... Need to insert that stock, August. This album didn't make me want to kill myself. It's, well, you know, it is by some distance my least favorite Slow Dive album. And it is largely just because it is the most in search of... Something unique about it relative to the rest of their catalog, I think. And you know that maybe that's something that I'll I'll find in further listening. I enjoy to some extent pretty much everything on here, but some of it fails to leave an impression in the way that. So I mean, pre- basically every other song they have, and that's the difficult thing about you know a band like this where the discography is essentially flawless. Um, it's just when when they fall short of that mark, it feels a little more drastic than it does with other bands so you know it's it's sort of a time will tell thing where you know how does this adjust at least in comparison to expectations i think the fact that they're going for like again the sort of revival of the idea of making an album that's kind of a direct antithesis to the thing before it is enough of a singular identity for me i i or it could just be the fact that i've brute forced so many listens of this that i just kind of get it more or maybe i'm just a fucking fanboy or whatever but i i guess another quality of the album that i like is just how it, it kind of goes without saying because it's a slow dive album but like god damn this album sounds good and say it with me kids thanks sean everett I didn't know he was actually involved with the the record beforehand thank you riley i didn't know he was involved with the record beforehand uh it, it's exactly a sound that i would have expected getting someone like him to evolve, but this record is engineered you know mastered produced it's flawless like it, it, you know vibe may not be your deal might be too languid for your liking very understandable but in terms of shooting what it's going for i think it pretty well and do hits the mark Absolutely. Let us know what you think of either of the records we've discussed today or any of the news that we've discussed today. Let us know what you've been listening to at home as well. Let us know if there's anything we need to check out. If you want to go above and beyond and support us directly, you can become a member of the Jams and Tea family for just $1 a month. Get your name and the title call of every video on this channel. Plus, if you want to recommend us a record to check out, your recommendation will go right to the top of the pile. Until next time, though, folks, rock over London. Rock on Chicago, Capital One, what's in your wallet?